so if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to Genesis chapter 40. Last week, as we finished up chapter 39 of the book of Genesis, Joseph, as we left him, had been thrown in prison. He was falsely accused of rape by Potiphar's wife, and Potiphar promptly had him thrown in jail. And that's where we find him again this morning in chapter 40. In chapter 40, we're going to look at one particular episode of Joseph's life and this season in which he found himself in that very same prison. And so if you've got your Bibles, let's read. I will read uh, the entire chapter, verse 1 through 23 of Genesis chapter 40. This is God's Word. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody of the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in the master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. So Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief bearer, excuse me, the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket, There were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, He made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer 
and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much for the privilege and the honor that it is as sinners who have been redeemed by you, as the church to gather this morning and worship you and honor you and seek to hear from you. That's what we do now, Father. We are so grateful for this book which we hold in our hands. We're thankful, Father, that you and your divine wisdom inspired and breathed out these words into the human authors who penned it down, and then in your divine providence, you ensured that what was kept throughout the ages is what we have today, so that we know that what we have is your very breath. And so we thank you for it, and we ask, Father, that as we turn to it, that you would speak to us. Speak through this word, Lord, to each and every person in this room and overflow downstairs and those who are at home and are yet to be able to gather with us. You know what they're going through in their life. You know, perhaps, the pit of discouragement that they find themselves in. And Father, may your word be a a balm of assurance and hope to them this morning. Would you transform us, Father, through the truths in this book so that we look, might look more like Jesus and that that might be for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. William Paley, 18th century English clergyman and religious philosopher, in Commenting on the history of Joseph Joseph, as recorded in the book of Genesis says this. It, referring to the history of Joseph, it is a strong and plain example of the circuitous providence of God. That is to say, of his bringing about the ends and purposes of his providence by seemingly casual and unsuspected means. I was drawn to that phrase, the circuitous providence of God. I think that's a great way to describe how sometimes God's providence does in fact seem circuitous and how he in roundabout ways accomplishes his plan and his purpose and his will. Years ago, Susan and I, before kids, were on a vacation in San Francisco, of all places, and uh, we just did all of the sites and all of tourist places in San Francisco, and there is a street in San Francisco called Lombard Street. I've got a picture of it on the screen. Lombard Lombard Street is known as the crookedest street in the world. Um, It goes uh, up a hill in San Francisco, a very steep hill, but it doesn't go straight from the bottom to the top. It goes back and forth and back and forth with all of these hairpin turns and switchbacks left and right. Um, every 50, 75 feet or so is another turn, and you, you go, the, go the opposite way. So it's not a straight line. 
from the bottom to the top. Instead, it seems to go every which way except up. But if you stay on the road, eventually you will get to its intended destination. You'll get to the top of the hill. Well, God's providence is sometimes like that, or so it seems. It doesn't often go in a straight line. It meanders. It follows what seems sometimes to be a most circuitous route. There are all these back and forths and switchbacks, and so much so that it's difficult for us to discern what God is doing and where he's taking us on this road. And so we just trust that he's sovereign and that his path, no matter how circuitous it may seem at times, will always lead to his sovereign and perfect plan and purpose. Well, this is where Joseph finds himself as he, as he is bound in chains here in Egypt, in this prison. God had given him a dream, as you'll recall, back in chapter 37, that, that God would, at one point in his life, he would bring him to a place of prominence, that he would bring him to a place of authority, so much so that his brothers even would bow down to him. And if that was what was going to happen, Joseph must have wondered at this point, how in the world could this current condition, my my current prison sentence, how in the world does this fit into that future? It's a great question, and to be honest, we're not going to find the full answer to that question in this chapter. It's going to come next week in chapter 41. Chapter 40 is all about the prison. We start the chapter with Joseph in prison, and we end the chapter with Joseph in prison. But as we look at Joseph in this chapter, as he's in prison, and we ask ourselves, what is God doing here? We need to be reminded that we too often find ourselves on a Lombard street of sorts. And it seems as though we're not really making progress one way or the other. And when that seems to be the case, then we need to remind ourselves and we need to remind one another that God's providence is often circuitous. And even though it's next to impossible to try to figure out what he's doing and where he's taking us, we can trust that he's still there. And we can trust that he's still at the wheel and he's still in control. And his perfect plan will happen. And he will see to that. So we see in chapter 40 here five sections. And what I'd like for us to do is identify these sections of the chapter and seek to understand what's happening here and see if we can glean some lessons out of this episode of Joseph's life. The first section is in first, the first four verses where we see Pharaoh's cupbearer and his baker, his chief baker, chief cupbearer, providentially come into very close proximity with Joseph in the prison. So who are these guys, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker? Well, these are not just lowly servants in the employ of Pharaoh. These are very important people. These are positions of high nobility in Pharaoh's court. They're noted as the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So presumably there were many cupbearers 
who would test the Pharaoh's drink before he drank it. And there were many bakers, but these were the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. They're referred to twice in this chapter as officers. And so these are important people in Pharaoh's court. And, and in prison, they would be considered distinguished VIPs and get special treatment. So Moses tells us that they commit some sort of offense against Pharaoh. We're not told what the offense is that they commit, but it's significant enough that it greatly angers Pharaoh so so much so that he has them thrown into prison. And then we're told that they're put into the custody of the captain of the guard. Now, we should note here that this is the same title that Potiphar had in the previous chapter. And so some have concluded then that this is, in fact, Potiphar. But it's interesting to note that Potiphar's name is never mentioned here, and it's quite likely that there are multiple captains in Pharaoh's employ, in his guard. Just as there were more than one prison, there's more than one captain. We know that there was more than one prison because he says that, that they were thrown into the very same prison that Joseph was in, which suggests that there were other prisons that Joseph was not in. And so multiple prisons, multiple captains of the guard. I don't believe this to be the Potiphar. This is just another captain of the guard in service of Pharaoh. But not only were they put into the very same prison as Joseph, but they were appointed to Joseph in verse 4 that he might attend to them. He, He was appointed to be the one who would take care of them and attend to their needs while they're in prison. We learned at the end of chapter 39 that when Joseph was sent to prison, uh, he rose in prominence in prison, just like he rose to prominence in Potiphar's house. And, and the keeper of the prison noticed this, and he saw that the, that the Lord blessed whatever he did, and that whatever he did in prison, he was, he was given, given success. It was met with success. And so the keeper of the jail in chapter 39 uh, put Joseph in charge of the other prisoners that were there with him. Now, parenthetically, just because Joseph was given these kinds of tasks and responsibilities in prison doesn't mean that we should at all think that life was easy for him. You remember, we looked at Psalm 105 last week that in part recounts part of the, this story of Joseph's life. And the psalmist explicitly states there that while Joseph was in prison, quote, his feet were hurt with fetters or handcuffs or foot cuffs, and his neck was put in a collar. And so he was still very much a prisoner in bondage in this prison. But he got the reputation in prison as one who could be trusted with various tasks and responsibilities. And so he's given here in chapter 40 the task and the responsibility of attending to the needs of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. Now, what Moses intends for us to notice in these first four verses is that God had not forgotten Joseph. God had not forgotten him. Consider Joseph's predicament here. If ever there was a time where there's a reasonable excuse for discouragement, where where, where it it is a valid reason for both discouragement and wondering what in the world God you're doing. This was it for Joseph. He was 17 years old when his brothers betrayed him back in Canaan and sold him to the Midianites who then transported him to Egypt where he was sold as a slave. 17 years old. And 
next week in chapter 41, as he is finally uh, freed from prison, he's a 30-year-old man. 13 years. Now, we don't know how many of those years he spent in Potiphar's house serving him as a slave, but certainly this prison stay lasted several years. I want you to just let that sink in for a moment. Sometimes as we're navigating through the narrative, the passage of time gets lost on us. 13 years, 17-year-old boy, gets thrown in prison, and he had done nothing wrong. Reminds me of someone else who was brought up on false charges, who was accused falsely and was punished wrongly, beaten and tortured, and whose punishment ultimately ended up being the means of salvation for his brothers who had betrayed him. We've mentioned this before, that the person of Joseph and the life of Joseph and the story of Joseph in chapters 37 through 50 point to and are a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ himself. And part of that foreshadowing is seen here as Joseph is is innocent. At least he's innocent of the charges from Potiphar's wife. He's innocent of doing anything wrong with his brothers. He's innocent, and yet he's punished. And ultimately, his punishment leads to the salvation of his brothers and the future of Israel. Jesus, too, was innocent, as we know. But truly and completely innocent. And yet he was punished, he was beaten, he was whipped, as we just remembered in celebrating communion together, and ultimately endured Roman crucifixion. But it was through that punishment that we can be forgiven and granted his righteousness and restored to right relationship with the Father. As the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, verse 5, but he was pierced For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And through his wounds we are healed. If Joseph's life, his story points us to Jesus, and it does, then part of our response to this passage should be one of embracing Christ. And what he accomplished for us on the cross. And perhaps you're here this morning. Maybe you're investigating the claims of Christ. Or maybe you're just here because someone asked you to come. And you're listening. And you're wondering. But you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. As your only hope to be rescued from the judgment that you and I and all of us deserve. Because of our rebellion against God. Well, then here this morning, as you see Joseph, allow Joseph to point you to Jesus and embrace what Christ did on the cross as your only hope. Trust in his finished work on the cross as sufficient to pay the penalty that you deserve to pay because of your sin and your rebellion against the king. And trust that it is sufficient. Turn from your sin and your self-rule and turn to Christ and his rule over your life. Allow the story of Joseph to point you to the cross. But back to our story here. This obviously must have been a time of deep discouragement for Joseph. 
One where perhaps he wondered, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? I know that you gave me this dream. You spoke to me in this dream. And you, and you said that, that, that I was going to rise to some position of authority. And, and that my brothers are going to bow down to me. Lord, I'm not, I'm not egotistical about that. I'm not prideful about that. But, but I know that was from you. How in the world does this fit in with that? What, what are you doing? Or are you, are you even there? And do you care about where I am and what I'm experiencing? We too have times like that in our lives, don't we? Times where the discouragement, the pit of discouragement, the prison of despair, perhaps, that we're in, tempts us to question those things about God. Where, where, where we question, God, are you in there? Are you here with me? Or do you care about what I'm experiencing? Now, we intellectually agree with those things as intellectual doctrines, doctrinal truths that we can affirm. Yes, we know that God is always with us because he's omnipresent after all, and, and he, he, he can't not be with us, right? And we know that he cares because his steadfast love lasts forever. The songs say that. And so we know that his, his love for his covenant children will never end. We know that. But when we're in the pit, we're in the prison of discouragement, we can begin to question whether or not these theological doctrines really have feet. We believe them in the abstract, in, in, in a general kind of intellectual sort of way. But when the Lord in his providence leads us through times of discouragement like this, where it is so difficult to trace out what he's doing and, and where he's taking us, in those times, sometimes we question whether those doctrinal truths are really true for us in the moment. And so we look at what God was doing here for Joseph. What was God doing for him while he's in prison? Well, he causes Pharaoh's anger to boil up at the offense, whatever it was, of the cupbearer and the baker. In his perfect timing, he causes Pharaoh's anger to boil up at them and throw them in prison. But not just any prison, the very same prison where Joseph just happened to be. And not only does he throw them in the same prison where Joseph just happened to be, but he choreographs this such that he is put in the, the, Joseph is appointed to attend to them. As VIPs, they could have ended up in anyone's custody, but they just happened to end up in Joseph's. We're meant to notice here the kind, though again, the circuitous nature of God's providence. Joseph is not yet delivered from his discouragement. That won't happen until next chapter. He's not yet risen to prominence in Egypt. That too will happen. We know the story, but, but it hasn't happened yet. He's still in prison. Still in bondage, and yet, in putting these important VIPs, these, these royal officials under his care, it's as if God was sending him these, 
these little tokens in prison, these tokens of his love and his care. As if he were drawing close to Joseph in prison and whispering in his ear, Joseph, though the world may have forgotten about you, and though your brothers may have abandoned you, I have not forgotten about you, and I have not abandoned you, and I still have a plan for you. In commenting on this, Ligon Duncan asked this, Do you read, I want to just read this quote because it's great. Do you read God's providences in that way? Even when you see mysterious and strange and inexplicable events at work in your life, do you receive them as if they are the whisper of your loving Heavenly Father in your ear saying, I have a purpose for you. And though it makes no sense to you right now, you need to understand it's me working in these events. And that's exactly what God is doing with Joseph. In the favor that is shown Joseph in prison, it is an overture of God whispering in Joseph's ear, saying, Joseph, my plan is still working out for you. It makes no sense to you right now. You don't know what's going to happen on the other end of it, but I am at work because I love you and I care for you. John Calvin put it this way in commenting on this. God before he opened the door for his servant's deliverance, entered into the very prison to sustain him with his own strength. Friend, in the middle of your discouragement, you and I need to be reminded that God has not left us. He's still there. His hand is still has a firm grip on the wheel. He's still in control. Things are not out of control. They are very much in control because they are in his control. And so look for those tender gifts from God as whispers in your ear that he hasn't left, that he's in control. Look for the cupbearer and the baker in your life, those thumbprints that God is still working, where he whispers in your ear, I'm still here. It doesn't make sense to you, but I'm still here, and I'm working this out for your good and my glory. Just trust me. Just trust me. Second section of the Bible of the chapter is verses five through eight, where we see the cup baker, the cup baker, the cup bearer, and the baker have this need for which Joseph is providentially equipped to meet. So, what's their need? Well, they have dreams. But the need is they don't have anybody to interpret their dream. Now, this, is, this wouldn't be a problem for you and I today. When we dream today, we don't fret about wondering, is there somebody who can interpret this for me, right? In fact, the meaning or the purpose of our dreams is something that is highly debated among scientists and, and very dependent on your cultural context. In our cultural context today, uh, we either consider dreams to be just random thoughts and images that have no meaning whatsoever, or at most we consider them to be some kind of representation of our subconscious, that these are the things that we truly desire or, or things that we're truly afraid of or whatever. But in the context of Joseph's day, when you dreamed, it was assumed that deity was speaking to you, that God was speaking to you, whatever culture you were in. 
This certainly was Joseph's assumption back in chapter 37 when, when he got, had the dream of his brothers bowing down to him. And he was right in that assumption. Because that's exactly what God was doing. We know that from reading the whole story. That that is what God was doing. He was speaking to Joseph in that dream. And this was not at all unusual for the Old Testament patriarchs. It it, it happened to his father Jacob. It happened to his grandfather Isaac. And it happened to his great-grandfather Abraham. This was something that was rather commonplace. And although God, I believe, can still speak to us through dreams today... He typically doesn't. He typically doesn't today, quite simply because he doesn't need to. And he doesn't need to because he has already spoken to us in two much more reliable ways. Namely, through his son Jesus Christ, the Logos of God, and through the Bible, the very Word of God. Both things that these Old Testament saints did not have access to, like we do today. And so just as Joseph assumed that God was speaking to him in chapter 37 when he had his dream, so now in chapter 40, the cupbearer and the baker are assuming that God of some nature, deity, is speaking to them in these dreams. They know that they have been placed in custody in prison and they're awaiting trial before Pharaoh. This is kind of a holding cell for them. This is not their final disposition. They're awaiting their final disposition. They're awaiting Pharaoh's judgment of what's going to happen to them. And so they get this dream in the middle of this. And their assumption is, hey, God's trying to tell me something about what's going to happen to me in this trial before Pharaoh. And so they're desperate to find out what's going to happen. But they don't have anybody to share it with them. And so Joseph comes to them the next morning and asks them, why are you troubled? And they say, well, because we don't have anybody to interpret these dreams for us. They did when they were in Pharaoh's court. Pharaoh, as we'll see next week, he had a whole host of magicians and sorcerers and diviners whose job it was primarily to interpret dreams. And so when the cupbearer and the baker were in the court of Pharaoh, they had no lack of There was no lack of dream interpretation available to them. But now, in prison, they're out of luck. Or so it seemed to them. So how does Joseph respond to them at the end of verse 8? He says, Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. So he recognizes that God is speaking to them and that it's important to hear what God is saying. But what he doesn't say is, Guys, you're in luck because I've got the gift of interpreting dreams. Imagine that. I am gifted in what you need. He doesn't do that at all. He doesn't draw attention to himself. Instead, what he does is he draws attention to the Lord. He says interpretation belongs to God alone. He sees this as an opportunity to glorify God, to bring glory to God. And God also gives us opportunities. Friends, sometimes right in the middle of our most discouraging times in our life, he gives us opportunities to give testimony to his glory and his goodness and his holiness and his righteousness, of his gospel and his grace. And the question is, in those moments, will we give glory to God or not? Joseph was at the lowest point 
in his life here. The very bottom. And it would have, it would have been very easy for him at this point to just kind of tap out and say, I'm tired. I've had it. I, I, need, to, I need to head to the sidelines and take a knee, take a breather. I'm tapping out of this. But he doesn't do that. He stays in the game. And he allowed the Lord to use him. And he gave all the credit to God in that. Friend, when we are at our lowest and the waves of discouragement are crashing over us, wave after wave after wave, we need to be on the lookout for those kind of opportunities to glorify God. Because we will have an opportunity to bring glory to God in the midst of that season that we would not have otherwise. That's what Paul said, right? That in those moments of weakness, his power is perfected. Remember when Paul had the thorn in his side and it was, it was affecting his ministry. It was hurting him physically and otherwise. And he pleaded with the Lord, Lord, take this from me. We're reminded of the Lord's response to him in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in your weakness. So what did Paul say? Well, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Friend, when you are at your weakest, when discouragement is heavy on you, you will have unique opportunities to glorify God that you would not have otherwise. And so look for them. Look out for them and take advantage of them when they arise. The third section of script of this chapter is the largest section where we find both of the dreams in verses 9 through 19. First is the cupbearer's dream in verses 9 through 15. And in both of these dreams... And the interpretation that Joseph gives, through both of them, we find a valuable lesson that I think we can walk away with. What was the cupbearer's dream? Well, he saw a vine, and this vine had three branches. And these branches budded, and then they blossomed, and then those blossoms ended up, with, ended up bearing fruit. And then he has the Pharaoh's cup in the dream, and so he takes the fruit, the grape of the vine, and he presses the juice into the cup, and he gives the cup to Pharaoh. That was his dream. Joseph interprets that, and he says the three branches, the three branches stand for three days. And what this means is that in three days, Pharaoh will restore you to your former position. You, once again, will be the chief cupbearer. But then... Joseph follows that interpretation up with a personal request that he makes of the cupbearer. And this is what I want to draw your attention to in this section. Look at verses 14 and 15. Joseph says to the cupbearer, Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also, I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Three things that we can pull from Joseph's request of the cupbearer here. First of all, he names the sin of his brothers. I was stolen. I was stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. I didn't come here of my own accord. I was kidnapped. I was betrayed. I was stolen. Secondly, he admits that he is innocent in the charges. 
He says, I've done nothing wrong to deserve being thrown into this pit in this prison. But thirdly and most importantly, he says he wants out. I want out of here. And so he politely and diplomatically but clearly asked the cupbearer to mention him before Pharaoh so that he might have hope of being freed from prison. Now, if we look closely at what's going on here, we're going to learn a a very important lesson regarding the responsibility of man in light of the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. He's in control. he's, He's sovereign over Joseph's life, as we've seen and we will continue to see. He he was sovereign over what happened to him with his brothers back in chapter 37. He was sovereign over that. His brothers were responsible, but he was sovereign over it. He's sovereign over what happened to him in the last chapter with Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife is responsible for that, but God was sovereign over that. He was never not in control. He was working, providentially working out his perfect will. And so his current prison stay, we must admit, is part of God's sovereign plan. And yet, Joseph asked to be released. He asked to to, to be freed from what we have already determined is part of what God's sovereign plan is. And we're not given any indication in Scripture that this was wrong of him. As he takes responsibility and he acts here to try to free himself and release himself from this discouraging situation. You know, sometimes we misunderstand what God's sovereignty means for us in our life. And we, we sometimes conclude, well, if God's sovereign, then why should I do anything, right? Because God's going to do what God's going to do. Why should I pray? Why should I pray? Because God's going to do what he's going to do. Why should I share the gospel with lost people? Because God's going to save whom he's going to save, right? And, and, and we could conclude with that logic, why do anything? Because God's going to do whatever he pleases. Let go and let God, we might say. But that's not a biblical understanding of God's sovereignty. And that's certainly not Joseph's perspective here in chapter 40. Providence leads him to Egypt. Providence leads him to the jail cell. But Joseph pleads with the cupbearer to help him by mentioning him to Pharaoh in hopes that he might achieve amnesty. And you know what? If it worked, it would be part of God's sovereign plan. It would be according to God's providence. Him asking the cupbearer to mention him to Pharaoh doesn't at all mean that Joseph wasn't trusting in God's providence as he spends year after year in prison. But it does mean that he's taking responsibility as he acts and he presses for release politely, diplomatically, even as he is still trusting in God's providence. And so uh, in applying this to our lives, if you find yourself in that prison of discouragement, that season in your life. Don't just wallow in it and blame God's sovereignty. 
Is that pit part of God's sovereign plan? Yes, it is, somehow. And I don't know the reason for it. But I know that there's a reason. And I know that he's doing something. He's doing something in you, and he is accomplishing his perfect plan in and through that pit. But if an opportunity presents itself for you to get out of that pit, if a ladder comes down into the pit, don't just stay there and say, well, this is where God has me. Just as the cupbearer being in the jail cell with Joseph is God's means for him to be eventually released from that, so that ladder might be from God as well. So don't confuse the two. So that's the cupbearer's dream. Next, we move on to the baker's dream in verses 16 through 19. And here, here we're going to learn a very important lesson about faithfully proclaiming God's message as it's given from him. We're told in verse 16 that the baker notices that the interpretation given to the cupbearer is a favorable one. It's good. It's good stuff, right? And so he says, well, I'm going to tell my dream to Joseph as well, hoping, obviously, that he would also get a favorable interpretation, but he gets nothing of the sort. In his dream, there are three cake baskets on his head. All dreams are weird, right? Three cake baskets on your head. That's just odd. But the top basket is filled with bread and all kinds of baked goods, but the birds are in it, and the birds are eating all of it. And so Joseph interprets this and says the three cake baskets are three days. And what this means is that in three days, Pharaoh will also lift up your head, but differently. (laughs) He will lift up your head from you. And you'll be hanged from a tree. And the birds eating the cakes mean that the birds will eat of your flesh. To put it lightly the interpretation of the baker's dream was somewhat less less encouraging than the dream of the cupbearer. In both instances, both the cupbearer's dream and the baker's dream, Joseph is in essence saying, thus saith the Lord. This is what the Lord is saying to you in this. In your dream. And with the cupbearer, it's an encouraging message of hope. It's an announcement of future blessing. But with the baker, it is a discouraging message of woe, an announcement of coming curse. And, and, and can I just tell you that the former is always much easier to deliver than the latter? Because nobody wants to be the bearer of bad news, right? Discouraging messages are much harder to deliver because the deliverer, the proclaimer of the news, is more susceptible, much more susceptible to softening a message that is discouraging than a message that is encouraging. But Joseph is faithful to deliver both messages here. And he doesn't soften the blow of the baker's dream. As John Calvin meditates on Joseph's faithfulness to deliver this hard news to the baker, he pauses to say this, the job of the preacher and the prophet is to tell you the truth as God has told it to them, even when it's unpleasant. Joseph doesn't hear the baker's dream here and say, all right, anybody else have a dream, right? 
Does anybody else have a dream that they need interpreted? No, wait, 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 Joseph, what about the baker's dream? Oh, I'll get to that later. Does anybody else have a dream that they'd like interpreted here? Joseph doesn't do that. But isn't that kind of what's happening when preachers just skip all over the place in the Bible? Instead of going sequentially through the word of God. And, and, and when you get to a hard passage, I don't know, like the defilement of Dinah, Judah and Tamar, you know, you don't have the option of skipping around it. Let's just cover whatever came next after that. No, you go right through it and you cover it and you interpret it and you tell the people of God what God is saying in that text in that passage of scripture because it's all God's word and we need to hear from God but you know all of us are given opportunities to proclaim God's message to faithfully share what God is saying in his word whether it's a parent teaching their children God's word and who God is in his word and what he's doing and what it means or whether it's as we disciple one another in the church and we counsel one another with the word. Or even as we share the gospel with someone who is far from God. Will we be faithful to the biblical message? Will we be faithful not just to share the good news, but, but also to share the bad news? That because of our sin, we deserve judgment. Or will we soft-sell sin and soft-sell judgment and soft-sell hell and just tell people that God loves them? Is that true? Yeah, mostly. But it's kind of like Joseph if he were to only interpret the cupbearer's dream and not the baker's dream. So what opportunities has God given you to proclaim biblical truth to the people that he's put within your spheres of influence, whatever that is in your life. Remember to be faithful, to proclaim the whole counsel of God, to share the good news, but also to share the bad news, to proclaim the promises of Scripture, but also the warnings of Scripture. And then finally, the last section of this chapter is in verses 20 through 23, where we see the fulfillment of, of these interpretations to the dreams. Verse 20 begins with, on the third day. And so Moses is locating the timing of this last section as happening three days later, just as Joseph had interpreted. And so on the third day, what happens? Just what Joseph said. The cupbearer is restored to his former position, and the baker is hanged on a, on a tree, just as Joseph had interpreted now, as we said earlier, we don't know what these guys had done. We don't know what their offense was that made Pharaoh so mad that he threw them in prison. And neither do we know why he chose to reinstate the cupbearer and not the baker. But if the chapter stopped right there at the end of verse 22, then we might think, awesome, things really worked out well for Joseph, right? Things happened exactly as he interpreted them to be. In fact, the guy that he had asked to mention to Pharaoh, he's the one who survived Pharaoh's wrath. I mean, that's awesome. It, it worked out great. And so if the story ended there, then, then we might think, great, Joseph's about to be rescued. 
I mean, it's, it's within his grasp. All, all the cupbearer has to do is mention him to Pharaoh and, and this long stay in prison. It's finally going to be over for Joseph. But then Moses tells us in verse 23, Yet the cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Sealing Joseph's fate to remain in prison. And then look at the first verse of the next chapter, chapter 41. How does it begin? After two whole years. He forgot. He forgot. And as a result, Joseph remains in prison for at least two more years. What do we take away from that? Well, we take away from that the same thing that we've been learning all along. God is still at work. He's still at work. God's providence is often circuitous, roundabout and meandering, and often not a straight line. Joseph thought this was it. He had to have thought this was it. He was so close to amnesty he could taste it. But then... The cupbearer's gone, and day turns into week, and week turns into month, and month turns into years. It was out of his reach. And friends, sometimes just when we think we're at the top of Lombard Street, we round the corner, and it's just another switchback, just like it was for Joseph. And then another switchback, and then another and another. Sometimes God's providence is so circuitous it seems as though there is no rhyme or reason, but friend, there is. There is a rhyme and there is a reason. There was for Joseph's life of switchbacks and there is for your life of switchbacks and mine. You see, God's timing in this has been perfect all along, absolutely perfect. His timing of of Joseph being sent to prison was perfect. His timing of of Pharaoh's wrath being boiled over because of the offenses of the cupbearer and the baker, whatever they were, were perfect. His timing of them being thrown in prison was perfect. His timing of giving the cupbearer and the baker a dream was perfect. And friend, his timing of Joseph being released from prison will also be perfect. It's just not yet. And so in God's providence, the cupbearer forgets about Joseph. He just forgets. And Joseph stays in prison. Another switchback. But, but, but just look. Look at chapter 40. So we're going to peek ahead just a, just a little bit. Chapter 41, excuse me. Look at verses 9 and following. This is two years later. Two years later. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with his own interpretation. And a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. And when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. 
And he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. Why did he remember two years later and not right when he was released? Because it wasn't God's timing. But now it is. His perfect timing. And so providentially, now two years later, he remembers Joseph. And everything changes for him at that point. So our takeaway here is to never lose sight of the circuitous nature of the providence of God. When it turns out that what you thought was the end of your prison of discouragement, and it turns out to just be another switchback, don't lose heart and don't lose hope. God is still in control. He's still at the reins. His timing is always perfect. And for reasons that are too high for us to comprehend, it's just not time yet. And so keep trusting him. Even if there's a, a million more switchbacks, keep trusting him. Keep trusting him. And keep following him. Keep looking for ways to glorify him. Until it's time. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for this book. And we know and trust that it's not just any book. That it is your very breath. And we know that there's life here. There's hope here. And Father, we thank you for the truths that are in this particular part of your scripture this morning. And we trust, Lord, that what you are saying to us from your word will bear fruit in our lives, not for our glory, but for yours. And Father, we pray for the person in this room, maybe at home, maybe downstairs, that person who is in that place of discouragement. That person who is in, they've just experienced another switchback. And they're tired and they're weary. Oh God, would you remind them, not just intellectually, but actually, that you are in fact in control. You've never let go of the wheel. And that you are good. And that you are leading them in your providence to your perfect plan and purpose for them. And Father, we pray for the one who doesn't know you by faith. We pray, Father, that they would not, not walk away from a passage of Scripture like this thinking that they just need to try harder, to try to be more faithful. No, we ask, Father, that you would bring them to the end of themselves. And Father, that the bad news would be very apparent to them but because of their rebellion against you, they deserve what all of us deserve, which is judgment and eternal separation from you. But Father, may the life and story of Joseph point them and us to the cross. And may you give that person the faith to trust in Jesus as their only, only hope for rescue, not their own efforts. 
Thank you for this word this morning, Father. May you be glorified in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.